Uh, good morning. I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an update on our uh, lead pastor, uh, Pastor Josh Wyland. Uh, originally, he was supposed to be back from uh, vacation today and uh, preaching this morning. Uh, the last uh, two weeks, he was away for a much-needed vacation. He was uh, on retreat uh, at a camp in Wisconsin with some family. And then he was planning on spending some time in Iowa uh, with his family. And uh, during the last couple days at camp, uh, he received word that his uh, father in Iowa was having some medical problems. And uh, he was taken to the hospital, and they did an MRI, and they found uh, a mass on his brain. And so uh, this, uh, this past Friday, just a couple days ago, uh, they did a, a biopsy on that. They did surgery. Uh, and he came out of that, and he actually went home from the hospital uh, yesterday, and they're going to be uh, doing a, a pathology on that on Wednesday. Uh, but the doctors there are uh, fairly certain that it's a very aggressive form of uh, brain cancer, uh, and, and they'll know for sure uh, here on Wednesday. But uh, the prognosis uh, isn't good, and so um, uh, that's the reason why Pastor Josh isn't uh, here today. Uh, obviously, uh, he's me. Him and the whole family is going to be going through uh, uh, just some difficult and uncertain times over the coming uh, weeks and months. And, and so it really just keeps them uh, uh, in your prayers. And, and, um, and just as a church body, we need to, to rally around their family just to give them uh, uh, what they need, the support uh, and the love uh, and the comfort that they need. Um, uh, so uh, with that, I'm going to pray about that. Uh, before I do, we're going to be... Uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 26. So if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, uh, we'll be reading verses 36 through 45 together. Um, Matthew chapter 26. And uh, while you guys are turning there, I'll open us up uh, with prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are. You're the God of love, faithfulness, mercy, compassion, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in love, quick to forgive, and you bring justice. You're a good God. Um, God, remind us of that. Remind Josh and Hannah and Josh's uh, family uh, of that uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months. I pray that you be with their family. I pray as a church um, that that we can really support them uh, during this time. God, I pray as we uh, look at your word and study your word this morning that you'll teach us that, uh, Holy Spirit, you'll be present in this place, um, uh, teaching us uh, new things, that this will be about honoring uh, you and um, uh, learning about you, uh, to follow you more closely. Um, This is for you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, If you guys would uh, look at Matthew chapter 26, we'll begin by reading verses 36 through 45. And these verses take place the night before Jesus is uh, to be arrested and crucified, and he spends some time in prayer. And so we get to see uh, a picture of Jesus's prayer life. And this is what we find, beginning verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. I wanted to read this passage from uh, Matthew because it tells of a time when Jesus prayed. And it wasn't just a normal prayer that he muttered under his breath without giving it much thought. It was a prayer that came from a heart that was experiencing deep anguish. It was from a heart full of sorrow. As Jesus put it, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I read this passage because it's an unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer is a figure of speech that we use when God answers no. And my wife's sisters, um, my, uh, my wife, Sherry, uh, her sister, Lisa, and her husband had their share of marital problems. Now, there were verbal spats. There were signs of infidelity. There are threatenings of separation and divorce. Umar did not believe in Jesus. None of these things were any secret to Sherry and I. We were painfully aware of them, and we did what any faithful believer would do. We prayed about it. Before dinner, we would pray every night. Thank the Lord for the meal, and then we would offer sincere prayers that Omar would give his life to Jesus. That he would restore Lisa and Omar's relationship. During youth group prayer times, I was a youth pastor then in North Carolina as well. And we were part of an adult small group. And we were very transparent and open. And we say, look, guys, we're very concerned about the situation. Please pray for us. In faith, we lifted up this situation daily, left it in God's hands. But on May 23, 2007, Omar committed the unthinkable He shot and killed his wife, Lisa, leaving his two children without a mother and leaving us without a sister and a daughter. And in the weeks that followed, while we were picking out flowers and a coffin and a plot in a graveyard and picking out the wording in her obituary, I was given a lot of time to think. My my mind wandered back to all those prayers that we had prayed. Questions came to mind. I knew that God had heard my prayers. I knew that he could have stopped it. When Sherry and I were driving from North Carolina to Indiana for Lisa's funeral, it was a 12-hour drive, our car broke down at 12.30 at night in the middle of nowhere, and we had to spend the night in a bed-bug-infested hotel. Meanwhile, Omar was a fugitive of the law, fleeing from the police to Chicago and then to Mexico, and he has yet to be caught. Justice has yet to be served in that situation. 
And it's at those times where you think, why didn't Omar's car break down? Why did ours break down? Why didn't his break down so that the police could catch him? Where's the sovereignty? Why was all the bad stuff happening to us while Omar was getting away with everything scot-free? Then the worst, most dissettling thought came to my mind, and it was this. Did my prayers even matter? Seems like God allowed the worst possible result to come of our prayers. The most resounding answer no that we could have ever imagined. God seemed to have had his own plan in this matter, despite our thoughts, despite our feelings. God did what he did, or at least he allowed what he allowed. So the question came to mind, do my prayers matter? Does prayer matter in general? If God's going to do what he's going to do, then what's the purpose of prayer? Why pray? And here at this church, maybe I'm not alone in wondering that. Lots of people here, lots of people everywhere have had bad things happen to them despite their prayers. And my mind goes back to that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed from a heart searing with agony, so wrought with emotion and feeling that sweat poured down his face. And that's when it hit me. Jesus prayed. Jesus had a perfect relationship with his father, and a huge part of that relationship was through prayer. And so if Jesus prayed, then prayer must have a purpose. And so if Jesus prayed, then I too should pray. Simple enough, I knew that. And as I began to think about it, I realized that my problem with prayer wasn't a problem with prayer, but a problem with me. I stand as one among many Christians who have found themselves disappointed with prayer. And so, having gone through this dark valley in my life, I decided to search out myself and God to see why so many Christians are disappointed with prayer. And so here's what I've found so far. It's not an exhaustive list. The following are three reasons why we might be disappointed with prayer and a couple of answers that may help us get started out of the road of disappointment and towards a more healthy view of prayer. The first reason why we experience disappointment with prayer is because we wear too many clothes when we pray. We wear too many clothes. Now, I promise I am not trying to start a weird cult here, uh, so bear with me. A time existed, the Bible tells us, when prayer between people and God was as simple as a conversation between two friends. This took place in Genesis chapter 2 before Adam and Eve fell into sin. In Genesis chapter 2, we read about a man and a woman who had a perfect relationship with each other and with God. We read about Adam and Eve walking side by side with God in in the cool of the day. And every day they got to ask God questions and they got to hear God answer them face to face and tell them about the mysteries of the world. Genesis tells us about a time when man and God were at perfect peace with one another. It also tells us they wore no clothes. Genesis 2.25 says, Now the man and his wife were naked, but they felt no shame. They were naked. That's the way that God made them. That's the way he designed them. And that's how they lived in front of each other and in front of God. They were naked and they felt no shame. And I'm not talking about their physical bodies either. 
I'm talking about their spirits, their souls. They were naked inside and out. So that when they presented themselves to each other and to God, they were who they really were. Unmasked, real, genuine. When they prayed to God, they were naked. They wore no clothes over their spirits. And that's how their relationship was formed. It was perfect. They were naked and they felt no shame because they had nothing, nothing to be ashamed about. For a time, anyway. But it all changed when they sinned in Genesis chapter 3. And I wrote a sonnet about this when I was in college at uh, Columbia International University. And I'd like to recite that to you this morning. It says, Man has not resembled his first design since the honest garden was lost to him. He took God's warning words as breath benign, leaving his naked nature to sin's whim. God's first design gave something else to us. The highest pattern for our human role. A one for union, unadulterous with God. To bear the organs of our soul that drive the blood, not hindering nakedness of either spirit or skin with our dress. In that honest place, man was pronounced good. Where heaven met with blood and meat of mud. But hasty made to taste the nuding fruit. And now our pattern is the fig leaf suit. God made Adam and Eve spiritually naked. They hid nothing from God, but then they sinned in this horrible feeling called shame washed over them. Suddenly they had something to hide. They made clothes from fig leaves to cover over their bodies, but they were inadequate to cover over their souls. When they heard God walking in the garden, they hid. When God asked them what they had done, they lied. For the first time in their lives, they didn't want to be naked. They didn't want God to see them for who they really were. And ever since then, people have been wearing clothes over their souls. They've been covering up who they really are. The result is we have serious relationship problems. Husbands can't open up to their wives and vice versa. Friends and co-workers have conflicts that never get resolved. Children grow up never knowing who their parents really are, even though they've lived under the same roof for 18 years. And worse, Christians appear before God to pray wearing elaborate spiritual costumes. They get into character as strong, willful, and independent people who are making tremendous strides in the Christian faith. Their prayers sound like monologues. But then during a few quiet moments here and there, we feel the painful, desperate pangs. I don't feel like I have a real relationship an intimate relationship with God. And we wonder why. William Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew, is a play about costumes. This is a play about an eccentric man named Petruchio who transforms the, shrew, uh, the shrewish uh, Katerina from a moody ice queen into a charming gentle lady. And what some people uh, might not know is that The Taming of the Shrew is actually a play that's within a play. There's a man named Christopher Sly, and he's the main character, the main character that Shakespeare presents as reality. And the main story in the play is one of his dreams, is a figment of his imagination. The real play takes place in a bar where Christopher Sly is a known nuisance. He's a drunk. He smells bad. He's dirty. He breaks things and refuses to pay for it. Basically, he's scum, and the whole community knows it. Well, one day, Chris Sly starts throwing back pint after pint. He gets slobbering drunk, and he passes out. 
Uh, he's out cold, and a rich man who happens to be at the bar decides to play uh, a bit of a trick on him. He gets all the people at the bar to help him carry Chris Sly uh, up to the room upstairs. They give him a bath. They put really nice clothes on him. They put rings on his fingers. They spray him with uh, delicious-smelling perfume. And they lay him in a comfortable bed, and they put this elaborate scheme where they're going to treat him like he's their lord, and he has this beautiful uh, mistress. And the idea is when he wakes up, he's going to be tricked into believing that he really is a lord all this time. And as the play goes, their plan works out. Uh, This is what Christopher Sly says as soon as he wakes up. He says, am I a lord? And have I such a lady? Or do I dream? Or have I dreamed till now? I do not sleep. I see. I hear. I smell uh, sweet savors. I speak and I feel soft things. Upon my life I am a lord indeed and not a tinker nor Christopher Sly. And so imagine Christopher Sly's embarrassment and disappointment when all the people have had their fun and dropped the facade. He'll be plunged back into reality where he's an unemployed, unliked, unbathed drunkard. Why? Because wearing a costume doesn't change who you are. And so many Christians get into character when they pray. They live in it. We've even convinced ourselves that we're someone other than who we are. We try so desperately to be independent. We try so desperately to be in control. This is the character we play, to feel strong. We want to think that we have it all together. But then something happens, a brush with death. Something happens to a family member. We get a phone call, and the facade falls apart and shows us for who we really are, broken people who are weak, who are fully dependent in every way, who really don't have anything together at all. I think too often we come before God covered in fig leaves trying to form an intimate relationship with God while we cover up the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of. Then we wonder, why do I feel disappointed with prayer? Well, it's because we're trying to build a relationship with God based on dishonesty and it doesn't work because God can see right through it anyway. And so the answer to this first disappointment, the answer is to be your true self. Be your true self. Prayer, as we learned in Genesis chapter 2, should take place when we're spiritually naked. When you pray, present yourself to God as your true self, not as the person you want to be, not as the person you want other people to see you as, not even as the person you want God to see you as. Come as you are. Come as the weak, dependent, and feel person that you are, the kind of person who isn't perfect, who makes more mistakes than we would ever wish to reveal the kind of person who longs for and is dependent on grace. Because that's what leads to true intimacy, and intimacy is an antidote to disappointment. We need not wear spiritual costumes when we pray. The second reason why Christians are disappointed with prayer is because God seems silent, and we've lost our sense of awe. God seems silent, and we've lost our sense of awe. There are things in my life, there are times in my life when I've thought and I felt that my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Or I feel and I think I can't hear God speaking to me when I did when I was first really following Jesus. And maybe I'm not alone in this, in this room. Sometimes Christians go through a period in their lives when God seems silent and it leaves them feeling disappointed with prayer. 
And now prayer, as I've come to understand it from examples in the Bible, is anything that you do that builds your relationship with God. Prayer is anything that you do that builds your relationship with God. But I think prayer in a lot of uh, Christians' lives is boiled down almost completely to making requests. I think if an outsider were to observe our prayer lives, they would conclude that God is the God of health and safety only. We ask for things like traveling mercies, and we pray for things like hedges of protection. Most of our requests are perfectly legitimate. I want you guys to hear that. Most of our requests are perfectly legitimate, but our prayers are made almost completely of requests. We want God to do stuff for us. And oftentimes the only time we think to talk to him is when we need something. That's not a very good way to build a relationship with somebody. And I want to go back to the Garden of Eden. As I said before, prayer took place in the Garden of Eden naturally as a conversation between friends. Adam and Eve's relationship with God was a perfect one. Obviously, they were doing something right. So I figured by taking a look back at what they did, it would give us who are disappointed with prayer a few clues. I studied Genesis chapter 2, and you guys know what I discovered? Adam and Eve never asked God to do anything for them. They never had any prayer requests. The reason being because God knew what they needed before they asked. He provided it for them before they even knew what they needed. He blessed them. He went beyond giving them what they needed. He gave sometimes just things that they wanted. This sounds a lot like Psalms 139.4 where David says, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. It sounds a lot like Jesus' instruction on prayer in Matthew 6 where he says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Adam needed a place to live, so God cultivated the Garden of Eden, the most beautiful place you could have ever imagined to live. Adam needed food, so he caused all kinds of delicious uh, fruits to grow. Adam needed a job uh, to keep him occupied. God gave him a job. Adam needed company, so God gave him a beautiful wife. How many of these things did Adam ask for? Zero. God knew Adam. He cared for him, and he provided his needs for him. Now, a lot of time has passed since then, but I think it's still the same. If you guys want to keep your place there in Matthew chapter 26 and uh, go back to Matthew chapter 6, we'll see uh, where Jesus is talking about this very concept. Matthew chapter 6, we'll start in verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33. Jesus says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things 
will be given to you as well. God loves you. God cares about you. He already knows what you need. And the point here is not that we shouldn't make requests. Making requests of God is a great way to show him our dependency on him for provision. Philippians 4, 6 says to make known your requests to God. Jesus taught us to pray and give us this day our daily bread. And 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on God for he cares for you. We should make requests. That's not what I'm saying. The point that I'm trying to say here is that it becomes a problem when making requests is the only thing we do when we enter into God's throne room. Remember, prayer means doing anything that builds your relationship with God. Building a relationship with someone requires, among other things, spending quality time together, enjoying one another's company. It requires dialogue, speaking, and listening It requires cooperative activity or doing things together. These are all things that Adam and Eve did with God before the fall. And those of us who feel like God is silent, perhaps we're not doing those things. We're too busy with our commitments to to devote quality time to our first love. Our talkative prayers, our monologues don't leave a time for listening. We don't hear the psalmist's invitation to simply be still and know That I am God. And one of the tragic things about our culture is that we've ingrained ourselves to look for God in places where it's difficult to find him. While at the same time, we avoid the places where we're likely to see him face to face. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 25. If you guys want to look there, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 25 verses 34 through 40. Matthew 25, 34 through 40 says this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Those are Jesus' words. Whatever you did for one of these least brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And so if there are any of you, like me, who feels that God is silent, or God is distant, or you've lost your sense of awe, then I encourage you to spend time with those whom the world considers the least of these. Go to an orphanage and play with some children who are in desperate need of some attention. Go to a prison and let them know that somebody out there cares about them. Go to a homeless shelter or nursing home and serve them. Play a hand of cards with them or do crafts or do anything. 
Go to a hospital or a home uh, for women or a crisis pregnancy center and make friends. If you do things like this, you won't just catch a glimpse of God. You will have an encounter with him face to face. You'll rediscover your awe of him. Whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And we have to know that there is a spiritual reality behind that. Prayer is anything that you do that builds your relationship with God. And my suggestion here is that you can have a real, living, breathing, speaking relationship with God by making friendships with those the world considers the least of these. If you do it genuinely, and if you do it as an act of prayer. The final reason for disappointment, and perhaps the most difficult, is that God doesn't always act the way that we want him to. God doesn't always act the way that we want him to. On January 2nd, 2006, 13 men descended into a mine shaft in Sago, West Virginia. When they had gone down about 10,000 feet, an explosion took place somewhere above them in the mine, blocking them inside. There was no way out, and dangerous gases, poisonous gases, were beginning to fill the mine shaft. This was the beginning of a terrible, horrific two-day ordeal. The family members of the miners met at a local church and kept... Uh, vigil throughout the day, 24 hours a day, praying to God for the men's safe rescue. The next day, they were given the good news that the men had been found. They had been rescued. All of them, except for one, was found alive. Everyone in the church celebrated with excitement about the miracle that had taken place. God had heard their prayers and had answered. CNN's headline even read, Believe in Miracles, 12 Miners Found Alive. For three hours, the family members celebrated until a second report came, canceling out the first one. There had been a mistake. Somewhere down the line, someone had misspoken. What really happened is that all the miners were dead except for one. And that one was in critical condition. The scene at the church became chaotic as the family members became distraught. Others lunged at the mining officials for lying to them. And when we hear about a situation like this, it makes us hard to question, what was God doing? But when something like this actually happens to us, it makes it impossible not to question. God did not bring my brother-in-law, Omar, to Christ. Omar committed murder. Our family member died. And it wasn't just an accident. She didn't get sick. Someone didn't make a mistake. This wasn't some piece of nature that was out of someone's hands. Because somehow I can wrap my mind around that. Everyone has to die sometime. She was killed on purpose by a person we prayed for, for salvation. What was wrong with that? Why wouldn't God want that? The truth smacked me in the face. God doesn't always act the way that we want him to. What a disappointment. Is there an easy answer for this one? No. For the last two problems, I looked to Adam and Eve for advice. And their examples gave us some answers. 
But for an answer to this last problem, I'd like to look back at the prayer that we began with this morning. That I read at the beginning of the passage. Jesus sat in the garden of Gethsemane, sick to his stomach with grief, thinking about the pain of the cross that he was going to endure soon. Sweat poured down his face, and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. He was with the father when it was all planned out. He was present when nerve endings and pain receptors were designed. He was with his father when the sign of the Passover lamb was given to the Israelites. It was to be slain alive. It was to be butchered. And the blood was to be put on the doorposts. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. He was going to be sacrificed. And so he prayed what any other human being would pray. Please, God, take this cup of suffering away from me. If there's any other way, please don't make me go through this. And isn't that exactly what we mean when we make those heartfelt requests to God? Please, God, don't make me suffer. And over the next several hours, Jesus was betrayed by his friend, abandoned by the rest of them. He was flogged. He was whipped. A crown of thorns was put on his head. A robe was torn off his wound-covered back. He was spit upon. He was punched. And he was nailed to a cross and left to hang there. When I, feel the, uh, when I feel overwhelmed by the questions that hover over me, I often forget that Jesus' own prayer went unanswered. Jesus, who had a perfect relationship with the Father, who taught us all how to pray, had one of his most urgent prayer requests unanswered. God said no. To understand why God says no, we have to understand his position. And this is what God's position is. He's a good father. In Luke 11, Jesus asked the men present at his sermon, Which of you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? The intended answer from the audience is, No, I wouldn't do that. I'm a good father. I love my son. I want to give him good things. And this is Jesus' point. He says, how much more your father in heaven? If you, fathers, being imperfect, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so your perfect father in heaven does he want to give you good gifts? God is a good father. He says yes to giving us good things. But the flip side to being a good father is saying no when it isn't the right thing. Part of being a good parent is saying no. We all know this. We all know saying no isn't fun. But we know it's sometimes necessary. We say no because we know the, the request isn't for the right thing. Or we say no because we know that there's something better. God is our, God, uh, is our good father who has the integrity to say no. Even when it's unpopular, he doesn't cave in because he loves us and he ultimately knows what's best. And that's a hard answer because sometimes that means that we suffer and sometimes that means we don't know the reason why at the time. I bring up Jesus's prayer because it's an unanswered prayer. 
because it caused immeasurable amounts of pain. But unlike our unanswered prayers, we get to see the end result of why God answered Jesus' prayer with no. We get to see the why. Yes, it caused Jesus pain. Yes, it caused Jesus to feel forsaken by God. But because of it, you and I are here today and we have hope. Jesus was doing the work of creating the gospel on the cross. God didn't answer that prayer because he knew that through Jesus' death, his name would be greater than any other name. We read in Philippians, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. Cause and effect, Jesus suffered, therefore he was exalted. God chose for his son that which would bring the most glory to his kingdom. And that's the answer to the question we bring up this morning. God doesn't always act the way we want him to because he's more concerned with making his eternal kingdom as glorious as it can be. God is more concerned with making his eternal kingdom, not this world, as glorious as it can be. As a result, sometimes we suffer in this world. Sometimes God tells us no. So when God doesn't act the way that we want him to, we need to trust in God's character, promises, and ending. When God doesn't act the way we want him to, we need to trust in God's character, promises, and ending. The definitive uh, exposition on God's character is found in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God takes Moses and hides him in a cleft between two rocks. And then he took his hand and he covered over Moses' body. And then he caused all of his glory to pass in front of Moses. And as Moses passed him, he took, as God passed him, Moses took his hand away so that Moses could see his back as he walked away. And as God passed by Moses, he spoke for himself. And this is what he said. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am who I am, and who I am is this, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Wallace Community Bible Church, friends, your circumstances will change in a second. But the character of God, God himself, will never change ever as hebrews says he's the same yesterday and today and forever by god's grace may we all cling to god's character that we may continue to live in line with the gospel regardless of our circumstances good or bad in terms of trusting god's promises There are a lot of promises that I could mention, but I want to focus on only one. God's promise to be with us. God promises to be with us. God first makes this promise to Moses in Exodus 3, 12, and it becomes a foundational promise for the people of God going forward. David picks up 
on this promise in the most famous Psalm, Psalm 23, where he delights in the Lord who leads him in paths of righteousness. He leads them down the right path that leads them to the right destination. And sometimes the right path leads to calm and peaceful places like green pastures and still waters. But the psalmist also recognized that sometimes the right path, the path that God is leading us down, also leads through the valley of deepest darkness. These are times in life where life itself is uncertain. We can't see. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean we're not on the right path. But the psalmist also knows beyond the shadow of a doubt, I do not fear. Why? Because you, God, are with me. That's God's promise that he will be with us no matter where we go. Without a doubt, he will go with us through the valley of deepest darkness. So when that happens, may God give each of us the faith to know that our God is right there beside us, going through it with us. And may that be our only source of hope, regardless of the circumstance. Finally, we need to trust God's ending. Because when we're shackled by the disappointment of our circumstance, Satan is going to be right there trying to convince us that he's winning. But the end is already settled. One of my classmates at Columbia International University, a guy named Stuart Cohn, um, he's gone to be with the Lord uh, a year ago. He wrote this one time. He said, the devil is a crafty fighter. But once you take some hits, you start to remember the last few rounds you went with him. See the familiarity in his step, the rhythm, the rhythm in his technique. Once your head clears, your ears stop ringing, the blood slows down, you remember this. The fight's rigged. Just wait for the last bell. This guy is going home in the trunk of a car. The closing chapters of Revelation tells us how it all ends. Satan is thrown into hell along with his reign of terror. The evil receive justice. There's no more crying or pain or sickness. We sing hymns that ask, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because the old world order has passed and God has made everything new and the curse is broken and death is done. And best of all, we live eternally as God's people. God himself will be with us and he will be our God forever. That's the ending that we need to trust in. And so trust in God's character, God's promise, and God's ending. And there won't be a lot of room left for disappointment. I'd like to conclude with this thought. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, in a very Job-like manner, Satan asked Jesus if he could attack Peter in order to destroy his faith. And here's what Jesus said to Peter the night before he was crucified. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Jesus simply told Peter that he would pray for him, but notice what he didn't say in the prayer. Jesus didn't pray that Satan would spare Peter. He didn't pray that Peter would be saved from suffering. It was simply, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith might not fail. And Peter was not spared. Despite his promise that he would never leave Jesus, when the mob appeared in the garden to arrest Jesus, Peter fled into the forest with many of the other disciples. When asked if he knew Jesus, Peter denied him. This caused Peter to suffer. He whipped bitter bitter tears of sorrow. But this changed Peter. Before he was a hothead and arrogant But this situation changed Peter into the man who would become a pillar of the early church. On the day of Pentecost alone, he preached the gospel and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ. Who knows how many other souls were saved through his ministry. And like with Job and Peter, I think Satan has requested to sift all of our souls like wheat at one point or another. And I think Jesus' prayer at times has been the same. May your faith not fail. And like with Job and Peter, God's not always going to spare us from the suffering. He's not always going to answer our prayers the way that we want him to. Why? Because he's got something better in mind. And if we were only able to take a step back and we are able to see what God sees, the reason why, then I think we would be able to accept it. I think we would lose our sense of disappointment because we would be able to recognize that in our valleys, sufferings, and sorrows, God is going to give us something even greater to hope for. God doesn't always act the way that we want him to. And that's because he's more concerned with the glory of his kingdom. And you guys have to know that that is your glory too. So as I close, I'd like to point out that we can't, that we have to keep our eye on the ending that it's already won. We can't see the why. We just have to trust that it's there. And we have to trust in something that we can't see that's called faith. So as I close this morning, I'd like to pray for all of us, to pray with all of us that our faith would not fail, that it would be made strong in the good times and in the hardest times. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your character. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your ending, that you are a good God, that you are in control, that you're the good Father who likes to give us good things, but you also say no when it's not the right thing. Lord, make our faith sure and strong by your grace. Not by us trying harder or pulling up our bootstraps and trying to trust you more, but your Holy Spirit at work in us, your grace at work in us. Keep our eyes on you. God, I know there are many here who are going through the valley of deepest darkness. Lord, I pray that they would be able to experience your presence with them, that they would know that they need not fear. God, I pray as a church that will rally Uh, around those who need uh, that kind of help. And I pray again for Josh and his family, Lord, that you would be the God of all comfort, that we would be the good church that cares for his pastor as he goes through a difficult time. All these things in your name. Amen.